As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning, that it's not suitable for children. And it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast. So Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. I'm at my, you know, current workplace. I get a phone call and they say to me, uh, we need to tell you that your mother has died. And I clap my chest and stop breathing because I think they're talking about the person who has raised me. But I also somehow think he used my previous surname and that made me think, hang on, and then he said the name and I went, oh, her. Our guest today embodies one of the earliest objectives of Australian true crime, in that the event she's here to talk about has long since fallen from the news. But she joins us to talk about the many ways it's affected and still affects her family. Sarah is a professional woman. She's married with young children and she takes great pride in the ordered nature of her life. It's a far cry from the chaos left behind for her father's generation by her grandparents 
whose marriage came to a violent end in the 1950s. As you'll hear, Sarah's peaceful existence has taken a lot of work on her part. The family continues to be impacted by the chaos, dysfunction and trauma of the gruesome family headline from three quarters of a century ago. I've worked in a few areas of law. I've worked in criminal law. I've worked in child protection. That was eye-opening. And I, I'm now a government lawyer, so it's all just very run-of-the-mill. I think I was around seven or eight when I was told that my paternal grandfather had murdered my paternal grandmother. It came up in the context of a school, I think a school project about your family tree. I guess the family tree is this thing that sort of continuously haunts me because now that I've got two children, I have to consider, I don't want to lie to them, but how much of this do I share with them? When do I share it with them? You know, do I wait for them to ask questions or do I, you know, preemptively provide information? It was my biological mother that told me and that my parents had been long since divorced by then. Their relationship was quite short. It would be what we would now refer to as a shotgun wedding. So there was a pregnancy. I was that pregnancy. And they got married uh, in the August of the year that I was born. Is this 70s, early 70s-ish? Yeah, 79. Okay, late 70s, yeah. So still, you know, pretty in terms of, I think, societal attitudes. It was all a bit shocking to have a baby out of wedlock and all of those sorts of things. I do recall being told at some stage, probably around that maybe later primary school years, so 10 to 12, that uh, my biological mother wished that she'd aborted me or not gone through with the pregnancy, given how everything played out. But apparently she couldn't do it to herself. She was standing in the clinic and decided not to go through with it. So instead she uh, married my father (laughs) and they had a fairly dysfunctional but short relationship and then they divorced. I mean, your father came from a family that that it doesn't get much more dysfunctional than your father murdering your mum, and that's his background. How old was he when that happened? He was three. Oh, my God. He was three. So he's one of five children. The youngest was two and the oldest was nine. And I spoke in the late 90s. In 1999, I did some research because I I don't have a relationship with my biological father, mainly that's his choice. He uh, had another family. He's still married to his partner. They've been together for close on 40 years. They have a functioning relationship. They had three children who are all now adults, and I have a relationship with my half-siblings, but I don't have a relationship with my father, and that's largely due to his attitude about the separation and the court's decision about custody and all of the things that unfolded after their divorce in 1983. And also I'm thinking about she and your father being drawn together initially. Obviously these are two people with... Trauma history. Yeah, absolutely. And his background, there's sort of generations. It came out in the murder trial that my biological grandfather also grew up in an orphanage and I know nothing about his circumstances. We're talking right now about... William, William Francis Godwin. So these two got married, William and Mary. In about 1940, 1941. So in that stage, they're in their very early 20s? 24, I think. Okay. And then within that 10 years or so, they had five kids. Yes. Also, there is another character involved here, and that is Mary's sister. Yes, yes. So a few different people, including the murderer and the family of my paternal grandmother all said that their relationship was pretty problematic, violent. She spent long periods of time away from him. He called it running away um, up to about seven months 
on one occasion. I think that just like there are family recollections of her behaviour, there is also recollections of his behaviour and that he was a violent alcoholic. And so that would certainly put some context around her leaving the family home, particularly leaving the five children with him. Mm. And Phyllis admits that she had a sexual relationship with William for at least several years before Mary's death. She was in love with him. And I think at best he was ambivalent towards her. I think she was probably a convenience because she took care of his five children. And certainly I don't think dads in uh, 1951, well, many of them were homemakers. No, God, no. And especially this man didn't even come from a home. This guy's an orphan. He's been raised in an orphanage and got his own trauma, no doubt, associated with that. So, yeah, extraordinarily this man, William, is married to Mary. He's also conducting an affair with Mary's sister, Phyllis. Again, Phyllis, by her own admission in court, is saying that that Mary knew about that and that they had argued about it, that Phyllis had said to her on a number of occasions, I'm going to take your husband if you don't buck up your ideas. But then at some point there's a final argument, yeah, where, where William shoots his wife, Mary. Do you know if the children were present during that? They were definitely all in the house at the time. The timeline's a little bit fuzzy, but it appears that it happened around 9 o'clock in the morning. The cousin of my grandmother, who I spoke to in 1999, said that he was under the impression that the, the two eldest children actually witnessed the shooting. They were the two that helped with the subsequent burial. His story is that they were in the kitchen, but they heard the noise, didn't see anything, that he put the body in the bedroom and closed the door, tended to the children, because on both accounts at the time of the shooting, Phyllis wasn't around. She was working down the peninsula or somewhere as a nanny or something along those lines and only returned to the house so a number of days after the shooting, maybe a week to 10 days after the actual murder had taken place. But she resumed care of the five children. And I suppose then we get into what she knew and when, but certainly soon after the murder, yeah, William has enlisted his two eldest children to help him dig up the floorboards and then dig a hole under the house where they have buried their mother. They've helped their father bury their mother. Yeah. It's horrific, isn't it? It really is. William sold the house as quickly as possible, the house in Collin Road, East Oakley, after he had he and the two eldest had buried Mary under the floorboards. He sold the house. Yes. Sold the house, moved to Richmond. Where, where did he say Mary was? Did he just sort of try and pass it off as she's she's just taken off again? Don't know. Uh, yeah, no doubt. If anyone was asking questions, the line would have been, well, she's run off on me again. And because that wasn't uncommon, it was a very plausible explanation. And it wasn't until the new owners of the house complained of a smell that could not be put down to the nearby abattoir that there were questions asked And he says he gave himself up. He basically went mad. He thought that he was drinking profusely following the move and said that he could essentially hear voices uh, and that he could see people across the road that weren't there and they were talking to him or surveilling him. And once the questions were being asked about the smell in the house and he came clean and he confessed. So at trial, we've talked about the fact that Phyllis spoke clearly. I mean, they they absolutely sort of gave up everything by that stage. They, they don't seem to have been holding anything back. What was his sentence? He received a, a death sentence initially. The thing about the trial that I find most fascinating in the legal context is that the murder took place in May of 1951. The murders actually, there's this uh, digital, now digital record, but it was a physical book at the time in the State Library called the Victoria Murder Registry, and her entry is on page two. And what that is is a record of the 
you know, murders of the day, who got charged with the murder, what their sentence was. And the murder took place on on or about the 2nd of May. He purchased the gun the day prior. The body was discovered on or about the 30th of August after he'd spoken to police. The coronial inquest took place in October of the same year, early October, whereby he was it was recommended that he was committed to stand trial for her murder. That took place in early November of the same year. My God. The murder trial was three days long. <gasps> there was a jury. They unanimously found him guilty. And then he was sentenced in November on the day of after the deliberations. I it shocks me. I to, mean, these days it's two years, maybe three years in between, you know, arrest and trial. That's extraordinary, isn't it? And the fact that the entire thing could be open and closed in three days is, you know, there would be people who give evidence for three days in a murder trial. Absolutely. He was convicted within seven months of the murder. Yeah. I always thought that he had shot her in the head because the cause of death is listed on the death certificate as a bullet wound to the head, many brackets, murder. At the time of the murder trial in 1951, all of the papers reported the incident as a single shot to the heart. And when I looked at the, uh, just recently, I got the coronial brief. The professionals at the time all said heart. And so I think it's just been a simple typo on the modern transcribing of documents and that the the death certificate should actually say hard based on all of the evidence that was given at the time and not head. But it is an interesting thing to think about for a quarter of a century. I've thought that he shot her in the head uh, simply because of the one document said so. But I guess, the, you know, that's why lawyers like to cross-reference their material because all of those paperwork that from the day tells a very different story to maybe what the media says or what family members can recall. Not that they're intentionally changing the story necessarily, but because our memories fade over time. So there was a sort of further process whereby the jury, although they found him guilty of her murder, I think they bought his story that it was an accident. And so they said, "Mm, we recommend that clemency or leniency and so the result of that was that instead of receiving a death sentence he it was commuted to life and at the time a life sentence was 15 years and he served about 11 and a half of the 15 years sentence the cousin that i spoke to told me a story about him finally getting out of jail and going around and trying to kill phyllis my god Okay, why? I think he was angry that she gave evidence at the trial. Still, after 11 years, he's still mad at Phyllis. Yeah, not thank you for looking after my five children. No, and certainly not in love. No. Oh, Lord. I think the real tragedy is that this one event had a very significant impact on all of the generations. So the oldest child had a disability and died fairly young. From speaking to this, the cousin, he was under the impression that the eldest child was essentially institutionalised. After that? Yes. Well, because the mother's dead and the father goes to jail, all five children have to be housed and so she's institutionalised due to her disability and the other four children are sent to orphanages and they were split up. They weren't together. They grew up in orphanages until they were in their teenage years and then they were essentially turned loose and they went on to have families. Nobody ever pulled them all back together? Nobody ever adopted them all together or not not Phyllis? Not that I... It was her responsibility to do that. I suppose she was a young woman, but I do recall being told, like a, having a vague recollection, that they were at at some point in their teenage years, about the time that they were leaving the orphanage, perhaps the younger siblings, that they were actually put together and said, "Oh, this is you know, you have brothers and sisters," and that so they were in contact at least by their teenage 
late teenage years with each other. When he did die, their father, in 1974, he basically had cirrhosis of the liver and was dying of alcohol-related liver poisoning, but also had an embolism, which is what finished him off. There was a discussion between the siblings about whether or not they should go and see him in the hospital. And my understanding is that some did and some didn't. But after he died, all of the children who'd had relationships in their earlier years, all of their marriages had broken down. Some had committed abuse against their own children and the two oldest brothers committed suicide. Oh, that's heartbreaking. So there's two left, two remaining. Oh, my goodness. Of all five of Miriam Williams' children, there's two remaining. Yeah. One of whom is your biological father. Yes. What conversations have you had with your siblings, his three children from his second marriage, about this history, if any? Have you have you ever spoken to them about it all? Well, I guess we're all aware of the circumstances around his upbringing. And, I, and one thing I guess we all collectively acknowledge as well is that he did later go on to have a successful relationship with a person who he's still married to, you know, today and really provided for the three, you know, certainly not me, but for his subsequent three children and not just, you know, in a material sense that you would hope a parent would do, he spent time with the children, was an active part of their, you know, adolescence. They all still have a close relationship with him to this day as adults. And somehow, you know, he has survived, more than survived. He's created a sort of quote-unquote, you know, normal family this time around, really against the odds. Like from his background, that's that's really unlikely, but it doesn't make it any less hurtful for you to to be the failed one. Yes. Yeah. It's, well, we, and I guess that's the thing that the eldest sibling and I have always been able to acknowledge, that we've had very different experiences with the same father. Yeah. And although my experience was pretty poor, to the, which is, you know, an understatement, uh, their experience was very different, and we and you know as we've grown up and become adults and understood that you know new, there, things aren't black and white and life is very nuanced, mm. we can appreciate that, and therefore we simply say, although we have the same father, we've had very different experiences with that person. The fact that you have a relationship is also an unlikely triumph, I think. Yes, yeah, it is, mm. and you know I'm very grateful for that, for that I have that relationship particularly with the elder sibling, we're, you know, quite close. The other difference that they have is that they have a a mother who is a sane, well-adjusted human being. The fact that you refer to your parents as your biological parents, I think, says it all. Uh, Well, I guess I have to differentiate because throughout all of this, I've been incredibly fortunate to be welcomed into another family. And I never want anybody to think that when I say my mother or my father, I'm talking about the the sane, well-adjusted people that looked after me because I've spent the majority of my life with the more functional. Who are they? How did you find them? How'd they find you? My biological mother met this man in a bookshop. He worked at the bookshop. And they had similar uh, interests and he mentioned that, I think she might have said, oh, I have a daughter. And he said, oh, I've, you know, I've got a daughter and a son and they established that their daughters were the same age. And so I, we were introduced while they went off to do their hobbies in the occult. I was going to say, that sounds like a euphemism. When you say the guy went off to do their hobbies, do you mean have an affair? No, 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 no. There was definitely no, uh, oh God, not that I'm aware of. No, it's so much more than that. It's the (laughs) occult. Okay. So forget affair. Okay. Yeah. I think at the time, um, my biological mother referred to herself as a white witch. Sure. Yeah. Our house was, uh, I lived with her at the time in a department of housing unit in the suburbs and 
there was a cauldron in our living room. There was a fox skin nailed to the wall. There were various altars with homemade wands, so sticks with crystals or acorns stuck on them, that sort of thing. And, you know, I was this sort of regular child who was in a church youth group and played musical instruments and sang in the school choir and was a bit of a nerd. And my biological mother took great delight in the fact that in our relationship she thought she was the cool one. I mean, she wouldn't come home and I was terrified of being left alone. And so if child protection in this modern time caught wind of what was happening, I would have been taken away. The, I guess, most ironic part of the story is that at the time she was studying to be a social worker. God. She's a handful, your biological mum. Well, she is, but I suppose the what I've come to learn over the years since I left is that she was really mentally unwell and there was, you know, a solid diagnosis that had been in place since she was 17, now called dissociative identity disorder. Back then I think it was called multiple, multiple personality. Pers- yeah. Really? Oh, my goodness. So you were living with a number of people and didn't know it. Yes, and it, that, you know, learning that certainly put a lot of context around the fact that I was mostly terrified because I never knew which one of them was going to pop out at any given moment. And there certainly were discernible characters, if you like, that existed. Do you know much about her childhood? I Certainly her psychologist who she saw for a number of years who provided a statement in the coronial inquest believed that she had suffered trauma. The type of trauma has never been defined. But there was also an incident that I, and this is just my, you know, armchair opinion, but when she was about four years old, she ran in front of a swing and a kid with polio who had leg irons on accidentally kicked her in the head. And it was a really severe injury, like a frontal lobe injury to a developing brain that required blood transfusions and all sorts of medical treatment. And I wonder whether or not that could also, that might not be the sole cause, of course, but whether or not that has played a part just in terms of the actual development of her brain. Yeah. So they met in the bookshop and then what, over the course of years you started staying with that family and then just stayed there? So while the father was practising his occult with my mother and, uh, you know, a group of other people, this was not just the two of them, his wife, then wife, uh, was at home looking after the children and being a normal person. And she was, you know, the PTA joining cookie baking, you know, homework supporting scout leader, the most wonderful role model that you could ever wish for. And I just adored this woman because she was everything that I wanted and didn't have. I started spending weekends with them. I spent some school holidays with them because my biological mother was still working at the time. I spent Christmases with them sometimes. And then from that part-time relationship that started when I was sort of seven turning eight. By the time I was 14 and I got kicked out of home, I went and lived with her. It's the things that people say to you that stay with you. And when I was just turned 15 and I was living away from my biological mother and things were pretty difficult, my father said to me, if I, he was essentially encouraging me to go back and live with her after the dust had settled after a few months. And I, and he wasn't uh, excited, shall we say, about me coming to live with them either. They were pretty relieved when I said, oh, no, I don't want to move to regional Victoria. I'd like to stay at my current school and all those sorts of things. And he made absolutely no effort whatsoever to be a parent in that moment and say, oh, well, you're 14, just turned 15. I'm I'm going to step in and regardless of what you want, I think I need to do something here. He said to me, if you don't forgive her, you will never have any functional relationships in your life because you have no compassion. 
And I was so angry at the time because I basically said to him, well, then you make up with her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was just collateral damage out of the relationship. It was a, I was a tool that they both used to sort of try, attempt to hurt the other. And, I, you know, I can remember having handovers at the police station and all of the things that, you know, you just don't want to happen if it can be avoided. But, again, we're dealing with two damaged people, so their ability to kind of rationally resolve something is limited. I think we should acknowledge before we go any further, your mum, your biological mother, she took her own life, right? She she did. She, uh, at 57 years old, she was the same age as my paternal grandfather. He died at 57. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Because I hadn't had any contact with her since 1994, I wasn't aware whether or not she was still alive. Oh, wow. Okay. You really no contact. Yes, but... It turns out that when someone dies, you do eventually get notified. She had created this illusion that I lived overseas. I'd had a relationship with her parents, my maternal grandparents, up until like well into my adulthood, all throughout the time since leaving home at 14 in the 90s. But we had had a falling out over my uncle who has also is no longer alive, not suicide, but he also died at either 56 or 57 and he was also quite unwell and he started exhibiting some really bad behaviour and I called him out on his bad behaviour and I alerted them. He was threatening to send somebody around to give me a Colombian necktie and various other bits and pieces And I actually went and got an intervention order out against him, which sort of sealed the deal as far as my grandparents were concerned that I'd been airing our family's dirty laundry and how dare I speak about such things. And it's, you know, she wouldn't sort of listen to me when I was saying he's unwell, he wants to die, et cetera. We've since picked up a relationship. I would say it's a more surface level and I think she tends to remember things the way she wants to but you know for her it must be devastating to survive your two children oh absolutely absolutely and to have both of them had serious mental health issues so how did you find out then you you still were kind of in touch with them but not in touch with your mum for what's that 20 years 20 years before she died yeah. So who who rings you? Who tells you? Well, basically Victorian 
forensic medicine, VIFM. Oh, did you have to identify? Were you the next of kin? I am the next of kin, but so there was no suicide note as such left on the body, but there was a piece of paper uh, secreted in the underpants with some money and the piece of paper had some contact details on it, which I think was her parents. And so they were contacted first. And I think the money was probably so that the pets were looked after. But money that comes into contact with, there's a lot nicer ways of saying it, but what I call that was body juice is actually tainted and the notes have to be taken out of circulation and reissued by the mint. So that was a whole process in itself, just going through that. My understanding is that after the suicide, the parents were contacted, the body could not be uh, visually identified because of the mode in which the suicide took place, which was uh, carbon monoxide poisoning in a sealed room, and it was the height of summer. It was 40 degrees. So after a couple of days, the body is very significantly decomposed and a DNA, like a mouth swab, was obtained from her mother, my grandmother, and that they used the mitochondrial DNA to confirm her identity. Right. And so then they contacted you. Uh, no, another week or so went by and they, because we were not really on speaking terms about the situation with my uncle, they also just put their head in, like they were just in denial and shock. And I think probably, possibly from a place of protection, but also because they didn't want to admit that there'd been this kind of family breakdown, they didn't mention me or they said, "I we don't have her phone number. What happens is there's a body taking up space in a morgue and people die a lot. We don't really think about this, but she was already the hundred and something death by the 9th of January in a year. And it, you know, it starts again on the 1st of January. And they were essentially saying, we need to make space and we need, where, what are you doing with this woman? Are you having a funeral? Are you, do you consent to an autopsy? Because technically it's still an unexplained, even though the, the situation that the police found when they conducted the welfare check was fairly apparent. You can't just make an assumption. So an autopsy is performed and the coroner is involved with any unexplained death. The coronial finding was that it was, although that there wasn't enough carbon monoxide like for the toxicology report to say that definitively that was the cause of death, but based on the circumstances, the fact that she'd saved these pages to her computer about how to do it. There was a shopping list, lots of diaries about what she called the barbecue plan. It seemed fairly apparent that it was a, a well-thought-out, well-planned and definitely intended death. So eventually the coroner, having gathered some statements from myself and her psychologist and other people, determined that that was the likely cause of death. Yeah. So now, is it true that you had to clean her flat? Yes. Where was Sandra Pankhurst? Exactly. We have covered that, haven't we? That Sandra brought that to my attention, that it wasn't too long ago that families were responsible for cleaning the scene, for if it happened at home, whether it be homicide, suicide, once the police were finished with the scene, they left. Yes. And that was that. And now, yeah, now we have trauma cleaners like Sandra Pankhurst, may she rest in peace, who go in and do that for families. But that did not exist in 2014 when your mum died. Well, I think it probably should have happened given that the property was government owned. Well, absolutely. It was a commission flat, right? Now, I have a mate who actually works in that department and this is his job. Yes. For many reasons... I have no idea how this responsibility fell to you. You hadn't seen the woman in 20 years is one reason. I think what it came down to is that my grandmother didn't want to pay for the funeral and the body can only be released to a registered undertaker, essentially. So it's not like you can go and pick her up, but they're saying, you know, come on, we've got to get this body out of here. And I think at that point she said, fine, here's her daughter's phone number. Oh, I found it. <laughs> found the phone number. Yeah. yeah. 
And so I was at work. I you know, rem- remember this very clearly because it's sort of out of the ordinary. But so I'd finished my law degree. I had secured a graduate lawyer position and I was due to start that position at the end of February of 2014. And this all happened in the January of 2014. And so a couple of weeks before I'm about to start this new job, I'm at my you know current workplace. I get a phone call and they say to me, uh, we need to tell you that your mother has died. And I clap my chest and stop breathing because I think they're talking about the person who has raised me and has loved me and done all these things. And I'm just frozen. I ha- I can't breathe. My ears are ringing. But I, I also somehow think he used my previous surname. And that made me think, hang on. And then he said the name and I went, oh, her. (laughs) (laughs) To which, you know, he was quite confused. But unfortunately then it was, do you consent to an autopsy? What funeral arrangements are you making? And, you know, I, I just sort of said, look, this is a lot for one phone conversation yeah and and uh, you know I was sort of saying when when did this happen or, and he was like oh well you know this was all last week and whatever and we but we need to we need consent from the next of kin to perform an autopsy and and I'm thinking how has it taken this long you know I have the same I, I have the same mobile number that I've had since they got the extra digit in them and we all changed over from analog to digital you know and that we all have online presence and you know it's very easy to find somebody you know, if you're going on a date, you can track someone down in two and a half seconds to do Absolutely. a quick background you would think check. the coroner's so, court can find you. <laughs> you would think, but uh, it all sort of came to this, I think, the dispute about who should be financially responsible for the funeral. And, you know, I was just sort of gobsmacked. And so I said to the coroner, look, can I call you back? And when I called them back, I actually, I was so annoyed about the situation being handballed and me not being sort of told for so long that I said, well, why don't ring her parents and ask them what they want to do with her body? And they actually did eventually accept responsibility for the body and paid for a funeral. There were very few people in her life that probably would have wanted to go, but none of us got the opportunity to go because they held the funeral and then put a notice in the paper that said a funeral was held yesterday and yesterday was in capital letters. So it was a big, oh, fuck you, everybody. Oh, God, honestly. And then I got a letter saying, you know, you, you're responsible for her debts and whatever and her possessions because you're the next of kin. So, you know, you sort it out. Then I was sort of being told that I'd need to yeah, clean out the house. And I I was thinking, why do I have to do this? And I was pretty angry. I don't blame you. I'd be furious. I mean, as I've said, I'm saying again, you have not seen this lady in 20 years. Like, you know, for all intents and purposes, you don't know her. No. And the other thing was that because I hadn't seen her in so long, there was a part of me that wasn't convinced that she was actually gone because this woman terrorised my childhood. I was absolutely in fear so much of the time because she was so volatile and unpredictable. I wonder what would have happened if you'd just said no, if you'd just said everything you just said. This woman terrorised my childhood. For that reason, I have cut off contact with her. I haven't seen her in 20 years. I'm not dealing with her. I think eventually the Department of Housing probably would have just come in with a large skip bin, thrown everything away and cleaned the, the premises. Yeah, so why didn't you let them do that? What made you <laughs> what made you go over there? I guess for answers, for proof that she was actually dead. And also because knowing what the you know this government bureaucracy is like, that it would sit there for a year and there was probably a very long list of people that would be absolutely busting to get into a property. And really, if it could be freed up and used, then why shouldn't it? But I guess I was not prepared for the fact that everything would be left exactly as it was. 
And I do recall after sort of getting the phone call and the three weeks between that and actually getting the keys to go into the house, the unit, I kept having this recurring dream that her dead body was on the end of my bed. And I slept with the light on well into my teens. Like I was terrified of the dark for a very long time. And I had to sleep with the light on for a good week or two. My half-sibling, the eldest, the one I'm closest to, came with me and we did it together. That's amazing. Yeah, that was a really solid effort of uh, sibling support because I did, and it's entirely optional, but you can request to see photos because the number of photos have taken at the time that the body is discovered. I requested to see the photos and they were incredible about the whole process. They, you know, sit you down and say, you can't unsee what you've seen. And we've put these photos in order of their sort of least to most distressing. And after each photo, we'll stop and you can continue on to look at all of the photos. You might look at one photo, you might decide you don't want to look at any, but there'll be plenty of time for you to make a decision before we go on. And we have access to counselling services and the like. But because I'd seen everything else but the body, I think I just wanted to close that circle and get the evidence that the lawyer needs to kind of know that she's at, it was her definitely and she's really gone and all of those things. And part of it was for my, you know, inquiring mind and part of it was for the child inside me that had a terrible, horrific, scary upbringing. And it was definitely her. And I got about halfway through the photos and then I'd sort of seen enough and I said, look, I think I'll take you up on that offer that I don't need to continue all the way through. And, I've, you know, I've satisfied my curiosity. I got what I came for and I don't need to continue on to just kind of see the really traumatic things because at the time that it all happened, I definitely snapped into the, you know, the doing mode or the fixing mode and I did everything that needed to be done, probably more than what I really would have been required to do. But it wasn't until about six months after that I think the gravity of the situation really hit me about what I'd seen and what I'd done and why hadn't the department come and done at least a basic tidy up of the, you know, the juice. So I think I need to ask specifically because I think I know the answer, but to put it on the record, effectively it was still the scene, like bodily fluids, all of that stuff was still there. Yeah. So there was a barbecue with coals in it on a pane of glass on the floor there was sticky tape over the air vents and there a door snake had been placed behind the door to keep the room sealed for the process there was a a body identification tag on the bedside table there was a, a small black box with I guess like the the shell of the pill so whatever substance was inside had been was missing. Oh, so she'd sedated herself. Presumably she... taken, yeah, yes, right. uh, with a straw. So there mm-hmm. was a straw and a large number of empty capsules and there was just this really revolting smell in the room and the bed that she lay on was, so the, what you know, the juice, if you like, was dry, but it had obviously leaked out of the body following the death and the, the the conditions were such that as I said it was the height of summer it had been 40 odd degrees and so the decomposition was very advanced and I didn't see the actual body at the time I did see photos later as part of the coronial process but it was just this the scene I guess if you like but we had to bag up all of that soiled bed linen and deal with the barbecue and get rid of the coals and the ash and take off the sticky tape. And there was this smear along the wall of the bed head. And I think that that was probably done by whoever had to lift out the body and put it on a stretcher or, you know, take it out by the ambulance. The um, wording that the coroner used found partially decomposed, marked decompositional changes. But I guess if in plain English that means melted. 
Yeah. And the smear on the wall, you think, yeah, so as they were moving the remains, it was like li- literally like leaving mark, left a mark on the wall where it touched the wall. Yes, yeah. But I went in, I spent 10 days getting rid of everything. It was full of crap. Yeah, what did you learn about who she'd been before she died? She had come in her mind to the end of the road. She'd had ongoing disagreements with neighbours. There were cross-intervention orders afoot. There was playing 10 hours of barking dog YouTube videos and padlocking letterboxes and cutting down wind chimes and reporting reporting each other to the department for child abuse and all manner of things. And I recall one of the days I was there cleaning out the house, this really sheepish man came to the door and kind of started making small talk. And I'm sort of thinking, you know, who are you? What do you want? I'm a bit busy here. And he was like, oh, you know, I'm I'm really sorry to hear about what's happened. And I mean, I think the all five flats probably knew what had gone on by the time the police came and the ambulance came and whatnot. And he went on for a couple of minutes and I sort of said, look, is there something I can, uh, and he he said, uh, yeah, I just really like my ladder back. Uh, and it, it was in the backyard because they'd had some sort of disagreement of which, you know, she had with pretty much everyone she came into contact with it. And clearly the disagreement had happened at some point, you know, when things were friendly and he'd loaned said ladder to her. She kept it. Yeah, she essentially kidnapped the ladder. And I was like, you absolutely can because the less I have to do, you know, I'm already up to my ears in hard rubbish and whatever. So if you want that ladder, you take that ladder. Did going through that process help you with, you know, things like the nightmares and things like that? It did. It was very cathartic. I found the divorce papers. I found all of my parents' information about changeovers and letters that they'd written to each other because they weren't on speaking terms. And as a you know, as a lawyer, I found it particularly interesting to see the you know nineteen seventies typed legal aid letters and court documents and things like that. So I you know enjoyed, shall I say, looking at those historical documents. But there were a lot of diaries that you know, conceded that she'd basically come to the end. She, in her words, fucked up her life and had isolated herself from everyone, her family, her friends, her employer. She was on work cover for a bullying claim and there was documents about she was just fighting with everybody. So there was the neighbours and then there was, you know, she bought this desk and she wasn't happy with the final product and she was taking the desk builder to VCAT. And, I mean, it sounded like all of her, you know, the ridiculous thing is that she would never know that I grew up and became a lawyer, but she was essentially a frustrated lawyer without a law degree who just commenced legal proceedings against anyone. Fascinating. That yeah. she could in as because she was always seeking some sort of vindication that she'd been wronged because that's how she perceived every situation. And that probably comes down to her lack of cognitive function. But she was always aggrieved about people who had wronged her. And it was the sole focus of her life that she used to monitor the neighbors and keep diaries of all the interactions and but the funny thing was about going there, it all looked so small. I think it, when I was a child, obviously, everything seems larger and a lot more imposing. And then I just went into this sad little flat full of junk and it it really made me see things in a completely different light about how unhappy her existence was. And I felt more compassion than I expected to. You know, I didn't sort of think, oh, good which the me of 20 years ago probably would have. Really, it just made me feel sorry for her. I mean, a connection is the antithesis of addiction. We need that to to survive and to thrive. And when people don't have that, they they find it in any way they can, whether that's, you know, taking out intervention orders against the neighbours, whether it's arguing with somebody in the supermarket line, you know, all of those things because it's it's an interaction. It might be a negative interaction, but they seek out that interaction nonetheless because they're so starved of connection. Well, and she just really honestly didn't know how to no. uh, have pos- positive exactly. connections. 
the only relationships she had in her life were negative, were with people she was suing or people she was taking to VCAT or neighbours she was feuding with. Well, the other interesting thing is that that she bought two barbecues but one was still unopened in the box. So I guess she wasn't sure, you know, how much carbon monoxide she'd need but she'd really, you know, doubled down on the plan. There, there were a lot of diary entries leading up to it for about a year about how she this is what she intended to do and she was deliberating whether or not she should carbon monoxide the pets as well so that she wouldn't have to worry about what would happen to them after she went. And so, but as I said, she referred to it as the barbecue plan. And so there was these notes that in the diaries say, you know, should I barbecue the pets? You know, and just reading that and you think, yeah, okay, this is this is what it came to. Yeah. This is not how you want your life to go. Before, so it all happened in January, but over the New Year break, she'd gone to far north Queensland and I think there might have been an unsuccessful trial run because during that holiday, the cats were in a cattery, two cats, I believe, and she posted her house key to the psychologist with this bizarre note that said, if anything happens to me, this is so you can get the cats out. And, I mean, people don't sort of do those things unless they've got a bit of a plan up their sleeve. Like it's a very unusual thing to do if you're just, yeah, you know, thinking your jet star might crash or whatever. One of the most bizarre things that happened over the whole experience was that there's a form that you can fill out and it's called the notice of a death or something along those lines. And it goes to places like Centrelink and Medicare to let them know to kind of close off those records so that people can't use the Medicare card or whatever. And you can lodge it through a post office with some ID. And I handed the form over at the post office and without a word of a lie, the person serving me at the post office said to me, is this for yourself? <laughs> and I was so gobs, but I was like, are you a stand-up comedian who's trying their new material out at work? Or Oh, my God. And then he was all flustered and, oh, sorry, sorry. No, not for you. And I said, I'm not that organised. <laughs> and the video shop, oh, there was a, there was DVDs. So I returned the DVDs and I must have given them my phone number or something because I'd said, look, this woman's died. But, you know, here's your DVDs back. And they rang me and they're like, there's a disc missing. Can you please check the DVD player? And I'm like, for the love of God. Oh, God, I don't care. And, it, you know, things like that and you're like, none of it is easy, is it? Like you just, you can't no. just, and, I mean, really, I could have just thrown it in the bin and, you know, totally. never. I don't know why I felt obliged to return these. You know, I'm a good citizen, what can I say? But The fact that you're going around and doing the trying to do the right thing by everybody, you know, is, is just a mark of the way you've chosen to live your life. So how do you then end up you? And when I say that, <laughs> when I say that, I say that knowing that you are, uh, you know, you've had a very successful career, you yourself are the co-head of a successful family, in, by which I mean, you know, you're raising kids, you're in a loving relationship, and you come from generations of trauma, generations of it, on both sides, alcoholism. Mental ill health. Yeah, you've got suicide on both sides. How are you, you? Well, years of therapy, for one. And, you know, I think that's really important to be able to talk about those things because but it's like there's this saying about sunlight is the best disinfectant because I think when people carry around their secrets or their shame, if that's how they feel, even, you know, whether or not that's a justified, you can't tell somebody how they feel, it's very difficult and it's quite cathartic to be able to to speak about it and to make sense of it and to hear yourself saying it out loud and all those sorts of things. But I've had good role. You know, I've had people that believed in me, I think, for longer than I believed in myself who stood by me and provided a really good role model of, of what it is to live a good life and how to navigate conflict and things because I didn't have any conflict resolution skills as a teenager, because I hadn't seen any. All I'd seen was blowing up, yelling, screaming, physical violence, cutting people off and never speaking to them again. And 
it took me living with a family that had those disagreements and resolved them without cutting each other off or hitting each other or doing things, you know, negative ways of reacting to conflict to realise that, oh, there is actually a another way to to navigate life and you don't have to just fall out with somebody and never speak to them again. It's You can actually say to people that really hurt my feelings or when you did this I felt X. You don't have to intimidate people. You don't have to scare people. You don't have to hurt people. That's so interesting. You're the first person I can remember who brought up the idea of conflict resolution as being such a key component of of change, of living differently to to the way you grew up. And, you know, families are complicated, like complicated. There's a lot. You know, therapists will never go out of business while families exist because I have to say it, it always happens more at this time of year. I think Christmas really magnifies that for people. And I can recall having really miserable Christmases as a young person because it was the time of year that my parents separated and my biological mother said that there was this incident where my father tried to drown her in the bath and look it may well have happened it also may not it's very hard to know to separate fact from fiction but she perceived that that happened at one point in time and that made her hate Christmas and therefore Christmas was always a miserable affair and she would often work on Christmas day and you know I've made it a point we in my house we put up the Christmas tree in mid-November and my son had a friend come over they're still pretty little and put things on the tree and decorate gingerbreads and do all these cute things because I have the ability to make Christmas a wonderful experience for him and he'll never know what Christmas can be like with a family that doesn't function that well. I love the fact that he gets an even parent. He always knows what he's going to get from me because I don't. There are no surprises because what I craved was that, you know, that consistency and the sameness and knowing what I was going to get. And that's having had the experience that I did, it's made me very consciously be what I didn't have. So he knows the answer that he'll get before he asks me a question because he knows how I am. And I'm so, so grateful to have the family that I have. I have an amazing partner. When did you tell him, by the way, the whole story about, you know, younger, young people who come from families that have something like this, uh, often talk about the dating process and like, when do you tell someone that, oh, by the way, there's this murder in my family or whatever? Yeah. I'm pretty sure I sanitized a lot of it in the early days because no one would go on a second date with someone who opens with something along those lines. <laughs> yeah. And, that, and I often, you know, where it's not, you know, where I don't have to, I don't say it all at once because it's, it's really, uh, you know, I laugh. I'm not laughing. It's not ha-ha funny. It's just so preposterous that it's hard to get all in one hit. But we, there was this thing called COVID and we were locked in a house for a long time. And so at, over at some point in those years, I, you know, we talked about bits and pieces and um, I'm sure it was not as exciting as the Italy and Croatia holiday that we'd planned <laughs> to have. Oh. But There are things that he, and not because I'm consciously not telling him, but there are things that he still doesn't know because they just haven't come up. And so every now and again, he hears something and he says, oh, I didn't know that. And I think, oh, of course, yeah, because I, you know, I didn't kind of sit you down and make you listen to the whole thing because it's it's unbelievable almost to get all in one large package. Yeah, there's a lot. There is a lot. (laughs) You know, we, a controversy in my house is when the whites get put in with the coloured washing. You know, no one's ending up under the floorboards. Thank you to our guest today, Sarah. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 139276 or 13yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week.
Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.